Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto kato. We thank you for coming here today to share in this kōrero as part of the 2020 New Zealand Festival of the Arts. I'm Lynn Freeman from RNZ's art show Standing Room Only, and I'm in conversation today with Rajoshi Chakraborty about his latest novel, Shakti. I have pages of questions, as you can see, but there will be time later in the, afternoon, in the, in the session for your questions too. It's proving extremely difficult for me, Raj, to settle on a short description of Shakti. I note that reviewers um, who have reveled in its complexity have had the same struggle. So this is the, the closest that I can get to it. As an allegorical, satirical, magical, realist, fantasy, political thriller... Wow. <laughs> ..referencing the rise of both right-wing parties, the hatred that led to atrocities, including the March 15th mosque attacks and the Me Too movement. You ask us to question how Islamophobia, xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia have been allowed to take such a hold on so many. And that the blame should also be attached to government, social media and reality TV. Um, before we start, I'd like you to imagine that you're holding your moral compass in your hand. Okay? It's a tangible thing, a tangible thing, your moral compass. And then unexpectedly, you are offered the opportunity to have your dearest wish granted or to be offered the superpower of your dreams. What are you prepared to do with your moral compass to accept that? Because, you know, if you're granted wishes or given superpowers, you're only going to use them for good, aren't you? You're only going to use them for the good of humanity because you're a good person. You're morally a good person. But you're asked to do something that's difficult, that's marginal, or perhaps extreme. So with your moral compass, are you prepared to just kind of put it in your pocket and you'll come back to it as soon as you can and everything will be fine, you'll find your way back? Are you prepared to put it under your foot and destroy it, grind it into the ground with your heel? Because as I say, you're given this supernatural power and you're going to do good with it, aren't you? I just uh, wanted to add that Lynn first shared that image with me about half an hour ago, and all I felt was, I wish I had that image when I was writing the book, because it distills so much about the book. So. You can borrow that for your next one, <laughs> right, and just right. put me in the credits, it'll oh. be fine. <laughs> Let me take you back, Raj. I mean, you've got several novels uh, to your name now. When you started thinking about this, the first inkling for Shakti, can you take us back to that? Um, yeah, very much. One of the funny things that led to this book was, you know, it became a convergence of two very different impulses. And I've, I've written that in an introduction to the book somewhere, and I think I have been influenced by all of the superhero narratives that have been around us, particularly from the big screen, particularly from Hollywood, and from Netflix and uh, other platforms, the kind of proliferation of superhero narratives over the past... Uh, 15 or 20 years or so, you know, they've been raiding the libraries and the archives of DC Comics and Marvel Comics, and we have all these superhero narratives, you know, almost ad nauseum. But I think that has influenced me. But on the other hand, leading up to Shakti, I have mostly been a realist writer. So, you know, there was so... I think Shakti came from two almost opposing impulses. The, the wish to write some kind of superhero narrative of my own, but also kind of, I am a very down-to-earth writer and I couldn't take my eyes off the real world as I know it with its insuperable challenges, with its 
villains that cannot be reduced to one baddie, with villains that are structures and systems and ideologies that are far too powerful and entangled for any one hero to lead us through. So in Shakti, you see both of these impulses. You see people with heroic intentions and amazing powers, but coming up against the limitations and backlash of a real world that hopefully you will recognize. You know, there I, it doesn't lead to incredible, immediate, uh, happy outcomes. Uh, so, so it comes from both of those. The, the realist in me wanted to write about this world that, uh, that we all recognize now, no matter which country we come from, because you know many of the themes in Shakti are set in India because that is a reality I stay in touch with. Um, but actually, my hope is that readers would recognize uh, themes in connection with several other countries around the world, from, from Brazil to the United States to Britain, say, Turkey or Israel, um, China, India. So I felt, I felt many of the themes in Shakti are part of a kind of continuum uh, that encompass many countries. Well, there's so many themes and so many layers, Raj, but two of the key ones, I think, are the abuse of power on the political level, on the media level, on the personal level, and the, the dangers of nationalism. How does it come to be that we can be cheering? We've got India and New Zealand cricket teams at the moment. We can be cheering on our sports team, right? And then somehow that can lead to the kind of violence that you see in England with their support of football has become something obsessive and violent. Our country is better than your country. We don't want anything to do with you. And you do explore that. And that's, that's every country has to worry about these yeah. issues, the abuse of power and the rise of nationalism, don't we? Absolutely. And I think, and I think when, uh, you know, one of the things that um, I think about all the time is how important the humanities are uh, for all sorts of reasons, above all because it, it allows us to recognize the full range and breadth of our humanity, what it is to be human, what we have achieved, the many directions in which we can go. But even from a political purpose, one of the reasons why, to me, the humanities are so important, the training we get through some education in the humanities allow us to distinguish badly made narratives from better made narratives. And maybe our leaders, our social leaders, our politicians, want us to gradually lose that ability to tell apart well-made narratives, convincing-sounding narratives, from very badly put-together narratives that are nevertheless really seductive. And I think one of the things that the last 10 or 15 years have really shown is that when people come under pressure for different reasons, it could be the global economic crisis, it could be the more, most immediate thing of the you know, different levels of anxiety that coronavirus has sparked. It could, be, it could be the resource crunch that we are all facing, the fact that the amount of livable land and drink usable water in the world is, is ever shrinking. But when people come under pressure, they become really vulnerable to hastily put together narratives of us versus them of who this country, who this land, who this water, who this limited pool of resources belongs to. 
It belongs to a, a, a group that's defined as us, and then there are many thems that are identified that are infiltrators, that are interlopers, that, you know, and, and one of the things that many politicians who have achieved great success, unfortunately, in many different countries have in common is the ability to um, leap on board with these narratives, with these hastily put together narratives um, that, uh, that divide people. I thought we'd have a look at the three main women characters and we'll talk about the, the female perspective that you have in Shakti, which is a, a bold move also. But let's start with our narrator, Jaya, because really everything hinges around her. So introduce Jaya, if you would, to our audience if they haven't had a chance to read Sure. It. So um, the story has three different... It begins with three very different women of different ages who live in Calcutta, very different social backgrounds. And the one thing they gradually all discover is they have these magical powers that promise to realize their deepest dreams. And Jaya, whom uh, Lynn is speaking about, turns out to be both the narrator and the main, the, the main character who will take us through the story. But she's only one of the women who discover these magical powers in themselves. And the other one at the start is a 15-year-old woman, and the third person is a domestic help. Um, so three women of very different backgrounds that we start the story with, who all discover this magical power one day, which they're initially exhilarated by, but very soon they also realize that the powers come with strings attached. And then the rest of the story becomes about trying to find out who is pulling these strings, who is granting these powers, and towards what ends. Jaya is a teacher. She's very smart. Now, you have her writing uh, as uh, we would call an agony art, but an advice columnist, which is very interesting, actually. And you have her writing as a male. Now, you're looking at attitudes towards women in India throughout this, and we'll cover some of them in a moment. But why, why is she writing as a male when she's a a confident, intelligent, educated woman. Right, right. Well, the immediate reason is that she works at a very conservative girls' school and she works as a history teacher. And the column she writes is targeted at young people to come to the column with a whole range of problems or questions that they might not feel comfortable discussing with their immediate elders, which include a, a range of questions that teenagers have about their own sexualities, about coming out, about a whole range of things they might not feel comfortable asking the adults in their lives. But Jaya's school would be horrified. It, it is very conservative and would be horrified to think that um, a member of staff is addressing matters like this in a public forum. So that is the, the principal reason why she has to adopt the, the mask of a man. And, uh, and also, perhaps, in a country like India's, um, there is still the belief that uh, your advice is valued more if it comes from apparently a male persona. But what I could do is kind of give people a sense of the kind of things that people write to her about. Yes, please, yes. Um, should I do a little reading? Perfect. Oh, so one of the things I could do is, because I picked an extract that allows you to have a sense of one of what it feels like for the first recipient of one of these powers, uh, what it feels like for her, how disorientating it is, how exhilarating, but also morally and in other ways disorientating it is. And 
our narrator is brought into the story when this young woman writes a letter to her, but she doesn't intend it for publication in the agony column. But it becomes clear. So, uh, but bear in mind, she's thinking she's writing to a man. Sir, a friend told me about your column because I needed some advice. I love the answers with which you help people, but this letter is not for your column. Please, for my safety, do not publish it. Yet I would dearly love an answer from you. Sir, my problem is that I can bring about anything I want, and I mean anything. I began to be aware of it nine days ago, and at first, I believed I had become extremely lucky. But this isn't luck. Now, I only feel afraid. I must sound crazy, first of all, for imagining that I can make anything happen, and secondly, for not feeling lucky about this. But let me give you an example. The incident that made up my mind to write to you. You'll soon see the other reason why this cannot be made public. I behave like a monster. I would be arrested. What I did was completely wrong. But I only dared to try it because I was so sure it would work. Because by now, I am sure that I can bring about anything I want. There's a 15-year-old girl who comes after school to help her mother in our house. Her mother does our cooking, cleaning, and other housework. We live in a flat on the fifth floor. Yesterday afternoon, the girl had come into my room to sweep the floor, and when she was outside on the balcony, I suddenly picked her up, plunged her right down to the ground floor, and brought her back up again all in one movement that took probably 30 seconds, maybe less. And I never moved from my bed. I accomplished all this with my mind simply because I wanted to. The girl was unhurt, although absolutely terrified. This is the moment to mention that I too am a 15-year-old girl. In fact, I am seven weeks younger than the girl I hurled down and raised up five floors. Of course, she has no idea it was me. As I said, I remained throughout on my bed, sitting against the cushions, appearing to chat on my iPad. I know I sound mad, but if someone had been watching, either on the ground or from another building, or else from a balcony below or above us, they would have seen it all. What I had planned and then achieved was like the activity of bungee jumping, only without a rope. Imagine a bungee jump conducted on an unsuspecting person in which they themselves saw nothing, yet felt an irresistible force. My mind was that force. I executed the move perfectly, just as I'd come to expect after a week of wielding this gift. I would not have dared to attempt something so risky with someone else if I had not been 100% confident of pulling it off. I repeat, she was unhurt. 
but the tears and the terror that overcame her afterwards made a great impact on me. I realized to my shame that I had put two days of planning into the jump, thinking about the right time and the right person, yet at no point had it occurred to me that, for example, this girl might suffer a heart attack. I had been so confident about bringing her back in one piece that I forgot to consider the other effects of the shock. Yesterday afternoon, she managed to run back into my room, away from the balcony, and collapsed on the floor. It took 20 minutes for her mother to get a story out of her. I pretended I'd seen nothing. In fact, I initiated the suggestion, taken up afterwards by everyone except the girl, that it must have been a touch of the afternoon sun. A dizzy spell, I argued, combined with being on the balcony, would have felt exactly like falling. Today, of course, she has stayed away. Her mother said she didn't go to school. Neither did I, although I'm in school uniform right now. But I'm in a cafe writing to you. If you're almost convinced that I'm mad, meet me before you make up your mind. Let me show you what I can do. How will you reply, sir? Right now, I'm dangerous to myself and to others, and I need your help. I don't recognize the person who planned yesterday's stunt so methodically and calmly. The entire time, I thought of it as an experiment or a test. And the one thing she failed to see was another girl just like her. Yours sincerely, Shivani. P.S. I hope you understand the main reason why it would be so harmful to publish this letter. Can you imagine the flood of people who would try to contact me in the hope of fulfilling their wishes? I'll stop there. Thank you. Still gets me, that letter. Uh, and it's a similar experience for Jaya when she comes into her um, gift or curse, depending on how you look at it. And again, good person, educated person, caring person, experiments with this and terrifies her driver because she can't let you pick up the story. What's her gift or curse? Well, her gift, and we realize... So each gift not only kind of um, comes to you in a form that feels like it's, it's been tailor-made for you and it realizes it's intended to realize your particular dreams... The other thing about, so in, in Shivani's case, there's a reason why she gets this apparent dream of omnipotence. Um, in Jaya's case, uh, the person who is an agony columnist, the person who has always longed to help other people beyond her everyday ambit, she's always longed to be able to reach out to other people beyond her immediate circle, she gets the gift of being able to look into others' minds, of being able to read minds. And so that's uh, the, uh, the moment in the book that Lynn is referring to. Suddenly she looks into her Uber driver's mind and realizes many things, not least that she'd been kind of ignoring him all along while attending to her phone and, and there's, a, there's a human being in front of her, but also um, the, the incredible level of subterranean anxieties and fears that are present inside him, which are in very relevant 
unfortunately, to this immediate moment that, that we are meeting, because this Uber driver is a young Muslim. And, uh, and many little things she says sparks of fears of violence in him. Like he's always afraid he's going to be attacked. And, uh, and if you've been following the news from India very recently, you know, um, Muslim neighborhoods were, were kind of singled out and, and targeted and attacked while the authorities and police kind of just stood by and let it happen or actively encouraged it. And she gets a sense that her fellow citizens live with all of this fear, go about everyday life with all of this fear barely beneath the surface because of her power. Arita's uh, got a different situation, granted two wishes, she, and these are related. I mean, it's not a spoiler alert to say that she um, lost her child, uh, had, a, had a difficult marriage, blames her former partner, yeah. and really does not know what happened to her baby daughter. Very sad story, and there are levels within that, aren't there, about what happens with some babies yeah. uh, in, in India, how vulnerable they are. So she's the first, really, to take a step uh, and find herself lost and it's come to her in the, in the form of a goddess so that's what you're saying for her the most appropriate way for this to be introduced is through this snake Absolutely. goddess yeah. Abs and, I think, and I think that's another of the messages about divisive narratives you know like um, because these powers kind of come to you appearing to be tailor made to you and speaking to your kind of personal whatever whatever longings you carry and dreams you carry, but also whatever particular psychic hurt, whatever damage, specific damage you carry, these seem to speak very particularly to them. And as you move through the book, you realize kind of where these powers might be coming from. And, you know, Lynn asked earlier about one of the inspirations for Shakti, and one of the inspirations for Shakti very much was that particular kind of right largely right-wing populist politics that is has been very successful in many different countries at identifying either legitimate grievances or perceived grievances among sections of the population who have felt invisible or ignored, and then, and then appearing to speak to them with a message of empowerment. We are listening to you. You are visible to us. We will be your voice. And, and, in, and the initially, that sounds great. That sounds like they are being given a shakti, a gift. But unfortunately, that promise is betrayed the moment they come to power. And that promise also comes, unfortunately, this particular brand of empowerment comes with an underside, which is also present in the book, which is you will be empowered because you are us, as long as you join us in our project of isolating and identifying them. Them, the illegitimate, the ones who don't belong, join us in identifying and isolating them, in barring them or driving them out, and then we will divide up the, the, the pie, we will divide up the spoils of society together. You know, that is the underside of that promise. And that's very much where Shakti drew inspiration. Um, a gift of, an initial gift of visibility, voicing and empowerment, but that has this underside. Join us in our project of isolating and, and creating an other. And then once they are driven out, society will be shared out amongst us. 
to have the female perspective, Raj, was that important? You're just talking about in Indian culture the 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 um, the invisible, really, and women have been in that category, the, the vulnerable. And this is a misogynistic society that we're talking about here, where women are, and these characters have had violence from family members, from strangers, from, from, from politicians, from employers. Their trust has been betrayed, and they're incredibly vulnerable. So to give three vulnerable women yeah. this power is, adds a degree of... Um, truth, I guess, and drama to it, they will grab it because they have felt victimised. They understand what it is to be a victim. And when you've been a victim, you don't want to be a victim anymore, you know? So that's, So for you, was it important? To, for, it was the female perspective that you wrote here? For a long time, I had had the idea of building up to the confidence where I could have a story, a novel narrated by entirely by women characters, and it took a lot of building up to that confidence as a male writer. So that was that was just on a on a on a kind of writerly level that I wanted to attempt such a story. But really, you know, the book is very much about the horsemen of the apocalypse: inequality, poverty, misogyny, and more recently, because of the the current ruling party that we have, bigotry. I realized very early on that I could not explore these themes as deeply as I would like to if I did not have my principal characters as women. And not just as women, but as women from a range of different backgrounds. That's where I was coming from with creating women characters, wanting to explore these themes as deeply as I could go. But then, I'm very much, once the book is out, I, it's very much up to readers, and particularly women readers, to, to kind of decide for themselves and, and kind of let me know whether the women in the book rang true for them, whether the experiences, their experiences, felt true for them. So, so that's something I'm, I'm kind of discovering as readers are picking up the book. You look also at uh, media and it's, uh, the way it's controlled by the politicians in India. Very much. I mean, it's traditional media uh, in, in India are also under, I mean, you know, they, they probably fail in their tasks enormously, but what is both visible and behind the scenes are the enormous pressures that they work under, which range from um, the directives that come from their, the, their bosses, the owners of the different TV stations and newspapers that they work for, um, who are either signed up ideological cronies of the government or have been threatened and intimidated by the government in all sorts of ways if they do not toe the party line of a triumphant narrative that India is proceeding wonderfully, the economy is doing magnificently, social harmony could not be better. The government has all sorts of sticks with which to beat the TV stations and the newspapers who do not toe this line. But what I'd also like to speak about is another level of media that, unfortunately, as with Trump and his team, the current right-wing movement in India have been extraordinarily successful at using, which is social media. You know, very often I think, you know, I, I'll tell you something, I only got on WhatsApp about four months ago, even though it is one of the most useful messaging services you could, you could be on, but for all these years that I've known about WhatsApp and so many people I know largely in India have been using it, I finally got on WhatsApp about three or four months ago very reluctantly and that's because 
in an Indian context for a long time now, I have felt that WhatsApp has become the gutter of Indian life, the open sewer of Indian life, because WhatsApp, you know, WhatsApp confers on Facebook and Twitter a peculiar kind of integrity, because on Facebook and Twitter, when you post your views, at least you could be a troll, you could be full of hate, but at least you have to sign up under your own name. It's there. It, there's a person attached to it. But what's been happening on WhatsApp are all these memes full of fake news, full of fake history, full of lies, full of division, full of bigotry. And these memes are anonymous, and what people did was just forward them. They would just forward them to everyone that they were in touch with and kind of tacitly participate in this spread of bigotry without feeling they were posting anything on their wall. Oh, I just forwarded it, you know? And that spread to the extent where actually WhatsApp took these measures and, uh, and kind of instituted uh, a new kind of... Um, whatever technical limit that you can no longer forward to more than four people at a time in India. So in the past, you could forward to everyone in your contacts list, which meant the hatred could just spread like one meme within seconds could go to 2,000 people. But now, if you want to spread the hate, you have to take a bit more time and spread it to four people at a time. So, but WhatsApp, you know, if you belong to a WhatsApp group, you were getting and you are getting these incredible messages full of unbelievable, unbelievable, unverifiable lies, and, and you're just getting it, and they come in these little packages, and it's very much a part of the book. And so what you have to imagine, as you do in America, these people who are at these rallies, these people who are brimful of violence, this is the diet that they are constantly on. There's TV channels with which are shouting matches of hatred, but also there are, there's this secret indulgence in our phones. There are these memes that we are seeing where we don't have to look up and own up to spreading and disseminating lies. We can just kind of secretly look at it and, and quietly believe it and spread it forward. And so the, the, the ways in which the government and the ruling party have been manipulating media range from newspapers and TV, which are up there for everyone to see, to this very sly but extraordinarily effective thing that we all carry in our pockets or in our purses. Um, their range is absolute, and it, they go everywhere with their message. One of your characters is, is offered their own web series. Right. Uh, let's come to the Faustian Pact, because this is, of course, inherently important in Shakti, these decisions. I started talking about, you can have this, you can do great stuff with this, yeah. you just gotta do this. It'll be really quick, you don't know the person, yeah. bad person, you can do something to a bad person, this is a good thing. You know, so the, the Faustian Pact is fascinating, isn't it, to explore? Anyone who signs up to the agenda or, or starts to listen and believe in the agenda of a, a divisive political figure is signing up to a Faustian Pact that I am going to feel energized and empowered by this person. All they're asking me to do is hate and alienate all those other people. That's already a Faustian pact that was behind this book. But the other kind of low-level Faustian pact that I very much had in mind is the Faustian pact that we kind of, you know, the terms and conditions that we never read when we download an app. So 
if we don't read the terms and conditions when we download the most innocuous of apps, innocuous seeming of apps, are you ever going to read the terms and conditions when you're downloading the single greatest improvement to yourself, i.e., a magic power that promises to deliver your deepest dreams? And so, you know, it was, it was also, that's the Faustian pact, that you have the power, you start to experience it, and then gradually, your monthly subscription is demanded. Always read the small print, hey? Shakti, you've published in India. Uh, what response have you had to it? Because it is very pointed. All of these things you've been talking about are yeah. very strong in here. And we can read it from New Zealand and perhaps wrongly be complacent. Uh, it's set in Calcutta, it's set in Delhi, it's set in India. Whew, thank goodness it's not like that here. It's a bit like Once Were Warriors. You, people looked at that and went, well... Great film, it's a Māori issue, and it's not. Right. You know, so you had these big themes. But in India, how is this being responded to? Well, initially, a lot of readers and reviewers were gripped. They really enjoyed it. And so that was the level, that's what you most want to hear. At least I do. But what was interesting about the initial reviewer responses was that's the level on which they presented the book. Like, it's, it's a really gripping read. It will, you'll race through it. You know, it's an amazing adventure story. It's a great mystery. But they seem to be tiptoeing around the politics that are at the heart of the book. And it also made you think the extent to which open discussions of such politics has um, an ever-shrinking space in most Indian newspapers. So it made you think that there's an editorial line that they're following and they don't want their newspaper to suddenly get you know, uncomfortable or, or scrutiny. But more recently, there have been some other publications that are not quite as dependent on government advertising for their revenues, where people have asked much more directly political questions about the content of the book and are not afraid of the political content to kind of come out and... You know, being in India to promote this book, I was also there, uh, I stayed on for a family holiday, and it ended up being the longest time I have spent in India in the last 15 years, although I try to go every year. But this was the longest visit in a very long time. And one of the things I became aware of, which is not to do with Shakti at all, is a wider thing. I had a lot more time to be aware of the, where the current ecosystem of reading is at in India. Hardly anyone in India is reading fiction just now. Because of a price war between different mobile phone companies, Indians have some of the cheapest and most unlimited data packages uh, anywhere in the world. So, the f so they have access to unlimited shows at any time on their devices, which even in the case of dedicated readers, I could see has really affected how much people read in the course of a day or at the end of an evening. And that, in turn, has had enormous knock-on effects on who gets invited to festivals, because festivals now only want to invite tried and tested names who guarantee big audiences, like, you know, a Shashi Tharoor or an Arundhati Roy, where they know the event will sell out. Um, so it's had a huge knock-on effect on the rest of the literary ecosystem, which is that people are getting their narrative fix so much from streaming platforms that hardly anyone reads fiction just now. There's a lovely quote from you, Raj. Good news or unfortunate news from India still affects me more deeply than from any other part of the world, and that is how I know it is home. Right. 
So you're, you're writing about home. How do you feel about India's future, given everything we've just been talking about? I think you still have great faith in the people of India, don't you? I do. I do have this enormous faith in what I call the everyday reality of India. You know why? Because our diversity is our greatest given. It is the given we were, we, we were endowed with and we had to cope with from independence onwards. Our diversity is our greatest given. And on the one hand, it is this enormous asset when it comes to our religious and cultural diversity. But on the other hand, it's also this great vulnerability when you have people promoting narratives of division. Ordinary Indians live under enormous pressure. The, above all, the pressure of very difficult and precarious financial circumstances. And people under pressure are vulnerable to stories that uh, can scapegoat others or give people a remedy for their difficulties. You know, let's ethnically cleanse this neighborhood because if we drive out these shopkeepers out of fear, tomorrow that shop can be yours. Do not underestimate the extent to which that can motivate people otherwise nonviolent people to participate in a pogrom such as we saw in Delhi. It's that basic. If we ethnically cleanse this neighborhood of Muslims and they don't dare to come back, tomorrow we can take over their homes and shops. So people live under that pressure, but what they also know is that the very fabric of our every interaction in India, you are likely to be interacting with someone who is different from you in some way. And all of our social, economic coexistence, our harmony, our shared prosperity, just getting on in the course of a day, depends on us managing and navigating that diversity. And I, I, I think people realize that if you rupture and damage that diversity too much, it's irreparable. And, and I think that's why, again and again, despite the most grievous moments in our history, ordinary people have pulled back from that brink and have repaired that fabric through continuing to find a way to live together again. And I do place this hope in that. So that's very much also a direction that Shakti takes uh, without giving any spoilers away. We're going to open up to questions in a moment, reluctantly, because I still have more on my list. But um, you've written an op-ed, Raj, that I might get you to share with Oh, yeah, so thank you, Lynn. Oh, if we have time. Um, this was an op-ed I was asked to write as an introduction to the novel. And when I wrote it and I submitted it, it was turned down on the legitimate grounds that it actually doesn't have very much to do with New Zealand. And so my first response was, aren't we all incredibly grateful that the issues touched on in this op-ed don't have much to do with New Zealand? So what I'm left with is an unpublished introduction to the book that no one has ever read or heard, this, so I thought I'd share it. Would, would that be all right? In Shakti, I wanted to tell a story that would comprise elements drawn both from the real and the magical. The book is set in present-day India, but I believe people living in several other places would recognize many of its strands and aspects. Here is a non-exhaustive list of some of the real-world themes I explore, as well as a few of the book's magical ingredients. To give you an accurate sense of the universe of Shakti, I'm leaving them unsifted in the listing. One, 
a ruling political party with uncanny antennae for the wounds and grievances certain people carry and for their longing to return to imagined utopias. Two, a mysterious technology so powerful it feels like magic as it enters and reads you and which learns you better the longer it inhabits you. It can give you exactly the past you ache for and make your most deeply held dreams come true. This Shakti, this power, is gifted, however, to select members of the population who belong both to the majority community as well as crucial political constituencies. In short, there is an us to whom everything is promised, but only as long as they obey orders against various thems. Live your dreams. Photoshop your memories exactly as you'd like, but be careful as you handle them because your gifts will bloody your hands. Three, what if big data were to meet the oldest human yearnings for miracles, healing, and magic? How is big data meeting, as we speak, the equally deep longings that rulers have for omniscience and control? What if a miracle implant could be used to divide populations to suit political ends? Or if it promises to release the best in people while secretly enslaving them through ties of complicity, guilt, and greed? While writing the novel, I would forward myself links to news articles from Brazil, the US, Britain, Israel, India, of course, China, and elsewhere. I like to think my story acquires some power and truth from such awareness, but to my mind, its magical, its magical aspects aren't entirely fictitious. In the magical thinking, practiced by particular political figures in each of these societies, in the apparent potency of their narratives about glorious pasts and or fearsome futures, in the darkness unleashed by their coded hints and explicit permissions, in the full range of transformative possibilities released by the technologies we already use that we can barely chart or understand, I found most of the dark magic I needed. A final thought, without giving away any specifics of the plot, that if the 21st century is going to be full of conflict about ever scarcer amounts of livable land and usable water, not to mention jobs that still require people, the narratives in each society seeking to define in-groups with established rights to such resources against various, infiltrating, against various infiltrating thems are only going to proliferate, get louder, more ruthless. Those of us who find such a vision of the future toxic and unacceptable will need to fight not just for a more sustainable way to live, but also for better stories. 
Beneath their many lies, the dark magicians of the present sense a deep truth. That the stories we believe in move and connect us, make us want to embrace and share. Science takes its time to persuade. Stories cut straight to the heart. Better science is how we either live or kill. Stories are why. Which makes changing the story the laziest yet quickest way to change the world. From India to Britain to North and South America, many are hard at work on terrible stories as if the future depends upon it. Shakti looks at one such case. Thank you. We have, we have um, I'm sorry, just a few minutes for questions. So a short to the point question is a really good question. I don't understand why, as India is actually doing better economically, we've got these terrible things happening. One of the interesting, you know, one of the interesting differences between the first election that brought our current government into power and right-wing movements, successful populist right-wing movements in many other places, is that the first impulse that brought our current Indian government to power was actually one of optimism, as opposed to deep and dark pessimism that brought forth, say, Brexit, that brought forth, say, Trump. There was an anger at the status quo. There was a, you know, there was a, there was a lot of pessimism about the direction the world is taking about the global, after the global financial crisis. It was not the case in 2014. In 2014, there was, there, was a, there was a deep discontent with the previous government. The previous government seemed to be drifting. It was a centrist government. It seemed to be drifting in, its, in terms of its grip on, on power. People had, had become very, very fed up with a number of scams, with a number of, uh, of high-profile cases of corruption that kind of had been condoned or gone unpunished under the previous government, and people were re really ready for a change. And here was this leader who put forward his charisma while completely airbrushing and stepping to one side the fact that he had already presided over a pogrom in his own home state. He kind of put that part of his personality and his identity and his political past to one side. And he, in 2014, he campaigned purely on a promise of economic betterment. My state within an Indian context is reasonably prosperous. I can bring that prosperity to the rest of India. And actually, people voted for that. People voted for this promise of economic betterment, a bit more dynamism, and he, you know, fortunately or otherwise, unfortunately or otherwise, has, this, has a certain amount of charisma. By 2019, however, five years later, at the last general election, the gloves came off completely. The, the promise of secular, neutral economic betterment was completely set to one side, partly because the management of the economy had really failed. Several drastic, massive decisions had, had you know, really ground the economy almost to a halt, starting with demonetization. And so by 2019, he ran not on a campaign of economic betterment for all, he ran very much on a narrative of us versus them, 
on the eve of the election, there was this, there was this incident whose provenance is still disputed. There was a terror attack on a bus of army soldiers, and questions still remain about how such a terror attack in one of the most um, secure parts of India in Kashmir, where there's a soldier for every member of the population, how such a terror attack could even go ahead, questions still remain. But basically, he ran on a narrative of of us versus them internally within the country, and of national security and the enemy at our doorstep when it came. And so the gloves had come off, and this new narrative, and, and, and what happened was he had a very feeble opposition to contend with, came back with an even larger majority, which has emboldened, which makes them feel their agenda got people's approval and has emboldened them even more. So, what started five years ago as a campaign run entirely on economics and governance, the gloves have come off and it's absolutely now about its absolute majoritarianism. And the other final thing I wanted to say is that, you know, the ideological masters that the government answers to, what the government is realizing in their day-to-day -day program, this, the, the overall program, the philosophy of it has been the dream of the parent organization behind our ruling party for about a century. And that dream is to restore something they saw, see the present constitution as violating. And that dream is to restore their vision of an India dominated by upper caste patriarchal Hindus at the top of the pyramid in which everyone else, all other minorities and women, know their place. They have a place as long as they know their place. So that is the greater, almost messianic model, the messianic vision this present government is following. And the henchmen they unleash on the streets are just a means to achieve that. So, so that's the other difference from, say, a Trump figure. You know, Trump figure is responding to current economic discontent and is kind of making it up as he goes along. These people are not making it up as they go along when it comes to implementation of that overall vision. They're putting in place a vision they have for India for almost a century in which the vision that you spoke about, about an India that belongs to everyone and is not defined by religion, that was anathema to them. So they're doing their best to reverse it. Um, Raj Chakraborty, thank you so much for coming along and thanks thank to you. our audience too. Thank, thank you, Lynn. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lynn.